Um, like Matt said, if you don't know me, uh, my name is Nick Roth, and um, yeah, we've been going through a series about Christ and just diving into his life and um, you know into, into who he was, and um, that's the point of what we're doing. We're trying to get to know him better, and um, yeah, so he's provided some of us young dudes the opportunity um, just to dive into the word and just kind of to tell you about well, what the Lord was, was showing us, so um, I'm excited to do that with you this evening. So um, as we dive into our passage tonight, we're going to take a look at Jesus talking to his disciples. And you can go ahead and flip to Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 30. And then in this passage, we're going to see Jesus ask his disciples a couple of questions. And I think these questions are really significant. In particular, the answers are really important. Um, However, even more than the actual answers, I think it's significant that Jesus asks asks them the questions in the first place. And why? Well, why does Jesus ever ask any questions? I mean, Jesus is God, right? Doesn't he know everything? I would certainly say that he does. Um, And there's an example in John 6, verse 5, when Jesus asks a question and he tells us why he asks that question. And it says, when Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. And so basically, Jesus asked Philip a question as a test, a test of his heart. And Deuteronomy 8.2 elaborates on that word prove a little bit. And it says, And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness, to humble thee and to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. So anytime you see Jesus ask a question in the Bible, you should take notice, because you're about to learn something about someone's heart. Because Jesus says in Luke 6, 45, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure of his heart, bringeth forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaketh. So with that understanding in mind, let's go ahead and read our passage in Mark 8. We'll start in 27. And Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Whom do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But some say Elias, and others one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answereth and saith unto him, Thou art the Christ. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Um, Heavenly Father, um, thank you so much for tonight. Thank you so much for everybody that's here and letting me be here and um, for the well and um, just for our church. Um, God, we are so thankful for you and for your word and um, the fact that, that you have Um, Given us your word, Lord, that we may know you, that we may know you better, um, and that we can trust it and trust that it's true and that you put everything there on purpose. Um, I pray that as we dive into it tonight, Lord, that you would reveal our own hearts to us and, um, God, that that we would would open them up before you and um, that we would approach you humbly and and willing to hear what you have to say. Um, God, I pray that um, you would just allow me to speak clearly um, so that I'm not a distraction and that we can hear what you want to have to tell us tonight. Um, Lord, we love you. Um, Thank you so much again for who you are and all that you've done. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so your first point on your study sheet, um, one of three, is whom do others say Jesus is? And back in verse 27, Jesus asked the question, whom do men say that I am? 
And in Luke's version, a parallel passage, it says, whom say the people that I am? So when Jesus asks men uh, or people, he means like men, mankind, people in general, the multitudes. Basically, Jesus is asking, what's the gossip on the street? Um, so we'll start, um, there's two subpoints. we'll start with the people in general. Um, verse 28 is the answer, and, and Peter says, well, the, the people are saying, and John the Baptist, but some say Elias, and others one of the prophets. And so generally speaking, speaking, people were thinking that Jesus was potentially one of three people, John the Baptist, Elias, Elijah, in other words, or one of the prophets, maybe Moses or Jeremiah or somebody. Um, however, it seems that most people were saying that Jesus was John the Baptist, because in all three accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the immediate answer is John the Baptist. Um, this is interesting. First of all, up to this point in Israel's history, uh, the point where John the Baptist enters the picture, there's been somewhere around 400 years of silence from God. Um, and historically speaking, up to this point, God typically spoke to his people through, pro- through prophets, and he confirmed his word through them through miracles. And for like 400 years, there's not been a prophet in Israel. So when John enters the picture, people are asking him who he is, wondering if he's the Christ. Um, if we look in John 1, 19 through 23, it says, And this is the record of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? And he confessed, and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elias? And he saith, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, No. Then said they unto him, Who art thou, that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. So John himself clears things up and clears up that he's not the Christ, but that he's the forerunner of Christ, and he's come to pave Christ's way. However, what's even more interesting at this point when Jesus asks this question is that John isn't even alive. He was already killed by Herod before this, um, and that's back in Mark 6, chapter 6. Um, so why in the world would Herod think that it was John? Um, and for time's sake, we're not going to jump into all the details of that story. But basically, Herod didn't like John because John called him out on a sin. Um, and, you know, Herod didn't like that. So um, ultimately, Herod kills John. Um, he was hesitant because he had a fear of the people that they counted John as a prophet. Um, but ultimately, Herod kills him. And so, uh, long story short, I believe Herod's conscience has been condemning him. In Proverbs 28.1, It says, the wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Listen, a guilty conscience makes you fearful and irrational. So when Herod hears of a prophet doing miracles and sending out disciples and doing all this crazy stuff that hasn't happened for 400 years, uh, he's quick to adopt the idea that John had risen from the dead. I think it was because that was already on his mind. Um, And Herod hadn't repented, obviously, and he hadn't gotten right with the Lord concerning his sin, which is a little ironic Uh, Because repentance was the main premise of John's whole ministry. He was preaching repentance and baptizing people to prepare them for the coming Lord. Um, And that was the whole point. So we see that sinful, unrepentant Herod misses Christ altogether, at least at this point. So allow me to caution you, and this is on your sheet. Don't let your sin through an unrepentant heart keep you from missing Jesus Christ. You must be honest with yourself about your sin before you can see him. And this is certainly true for those that need salvation. And unfortunately, many of us today probably know people that this applies to. However, even if you are saved, 
you can still allow sin and unrepentance to derail your walk with Christ. And before long, you find yourself living carnally in the blindness that Revelation 3.17 describes as the Laodicean Christian. However, Herod's just one man, and there's more going on here than just his story. Um, We already saw that the people were considering that John might be the Christ before he was dead. Plus, although it seems true that John the Baptist was the majority answer to the question, uh, he certainly wasn't the only answer. Back in Mark 8, verse 28. Again, we see that some say Jesus is Elijah and others that he's one of the prophets. And in Matthew's version, Jeremiah is even thrown into the mix. So gossip has an assortment of people as the answer to Jesus' question. And we do find prophecies about a few of them. In Malachi 3, 1, it says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, which is exactly what John was doing. And Isaiah 40, verse 3 says, The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. And that's exactly what John was saying. And in Malachi 4, 5, 4, 5, it does promise, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Which is why everyone was concerned about John and Jesus being Elijah. However, here's the bottom line. Jesus wasn't John the Baptist, and he wasn't Elijah or Jeremiah or Moses or one of the old prophets risen again. Those answers are wrong. When John was baptizing in the Jordan in John 1.26, He said, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom you know not. And he was right. People didn't know Jesus, and they certainly didn't know he was the Christ. Most of the large crowds of people that followed Jesus merely followed him for what they could get, especially in his early ministry. Mark 3, 8 says that people came unto him when they had heard what great things he did. Or in John chapter 6, before the feeding of the 5,000, it says... And the great multitude followed him because they believed he was the Christ. No, no, that's not what it says. They followed him because they saw the miracles which he did on them that were diseased. However, and even after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus and his disciples go across the Sea of Galilee. They kind of run from the people a little bit. um, But they're followed by him and discovered by a whole bunch more. And this is what Jesus tells them. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. And that's in verse 26 of that chapter. And so we clearly see that the people were following Jesus because he was a spectacle, entertainment maybe even, and because there was some benefit to them for doing so. And since this is the case, as soon as Jesus starts talking in ways that are offensive, later in in John 6, many of those that were even called his disciples, not to mention the multitudes, went back and walked no more with him. Similarly, even in the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done, the key result is they repented not. That's in Matthew 11. So in general, most people weren't following him based on who he was, but mainly what they could get. They were of selfish hearts. So when Jesus says in Matthew 7, 13 through 14, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. It proves to be true of the multitudes by their general answer of whom Jesus is. Because it was wrong. And so we're faced with another principle to ponder. If you're following Jesus for what you can benefit from him, you're not really following him at all. And it seems that John was right about even the general multitudes when he said that they didn't know him back in, first, in John chapter 1, verse 26. They were misguided, or at least uninformed about scriptures and Christ, and they didn't really ever know him personally. And they appeared to follow him, but for the wrong reasons. 
And there's a lot of people like that today. The primary difference between biblical Christianity and every other religion in the world today is their answer to how man gets to God. Biblical Christianity says that man gets to God by Christ's work, whereas every other religion says that man gets to God by some means or form or addition of man's works. At the end of the day, that approach says that God alone is not enough and spins the focus back on man, back on us, and it's a selfish approach. When it's man's works that get him to God, man gets to boast. Man is in control. Man can live how he wants because he can always work his own way back to God. And man follows because it benefits him through social status, political power, wealth, or at a minimum, it eases his guilty conscience. And that's the majority of the religions in the world today and people. And concerning the general disciples back in John 6, we came to see that many of them turned out to not be so devoted after all. Either they were never true disciples and made that manifest by going out, like 1 John 2.19 says, or they allowed themselves to be offended because they didn't love Jesus very much. And we know that Psalms 119.165 establishes the idea that your ability to be offended is inversely correlated with your love for the word of God. Oh, and Jesus is the word, John 1.14. Unfortunately, these, these scenarios are applicable for far more today than we'd like them to be. And all you can do is check your own reasoning for why you're following Jesus, especially if you backslidden or allowed yourself to be offended at times. And you, you need to make sure you're not following him selfishly. Okay, and so now it's interesting that Jesus asks his disciples about people in general, and yet there's some important characters that he, he's interacted with um, that he didn't ask about specifically, and that's the Pharisees. And we're not going to spend too much time here, so let me cut to the chase, if you will. I don't think there's any question about where the Pharisees' hearts were. They were full of pride. Now, so was Herod's heart. But I say the main difference between Herod and the Pharisees is that the Pharisees knew the scriptures. Herod, probably not so much. The Pharisees didn't miss Jesus. They denied him. And yet, these guys were the religious leaders of the day. They were the guys that everyone was supposed to follow. The guys that knew and taught the scriptures. The guys that looked good on the outside. But that's it. And it was only on the outside that they looked good. And everything was all fine and dandy in their world until Jesus shows up because Jesus calls them out on it all over the place. If we look in Mark chapter 7, verses 6 and 7, it says, He answered and said unto them, Jesus, Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus says their words don't match their hearts, and he calls them hypocrites for it. So we see the definition of a hypocrite is someone whose words don't match his or her heart. Hypocrites' words don't match their actions because their words don't match their heart. And like we saw in Luke 6.45 when we opened up tonight, your mouth speaks out of the abundance of your heart. These guys were living hypocritical lives and deceiving many into thinking that they loved God But eventually Jesus shows up, stirs up the waters, and the truth in their hearts begins to come out. When Stephen is preaching to them in Acts 7, he calls them stiff-necked and uncircumcised in their hearts, resisting the Holy Ghost. And we see this resistance in a few places. One for sure, when Jesus is being questioned by the high priest before he's about to be crucified. In Mark 14, 61, let's look there. But he held his peace and answered nothing, meaning Jesus. Again, the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. 
Then the high priest rent his clothes and saith, What need we any further witnesses? Ye have heard the blasphemy, what think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. So here they deny that he was the Christ, calling his profession blasphemy and even guilty of death. That's resistance. And moreover, they even attribute Christ's workings to the workings of Satan in Matthew 12, 24. After Jesus, Jesus heals and casts a devil out of a man, and they say, the Pharisees say, this fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. So they're calling Jesus the enemy and his workings according to, according to Satan's. That's messed up. And to make matters worse, I don't think that's what they believed in their hearts. I think they knew exactly who Jesus was. But because of their pride and hypocrisy, they wouldn't admit it. Now, today, we may not know many people on a daily basis that deny Christ and call him the devil. However, I suspect that we've all been accused of hypocrisy at some point or another, haven't we? Listen, the Pharisees were exposed for being hypocrites when Jesus showed up. And the next time he shows up will be no different, except this time, it might be us. Get right with Christ now, because when he comes back, we'll all be exposed for who we really are in our hearts. The Pharisees were clearly against Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, that Wherefore, I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. In light of what we just saw, I'd say the Pharisees called Jesus accursed. So they definitely weren't speaking by the Holy Ghost. However, the flip side's also true. Um, those that call Jesus Lord do so by the Holy Ghost, which brings us to our next point. Whom do the disciples say Jesus is? So if we look back in our passage in Mark 8, um, it's short, so let's read, read the whole thing again. Um, and Jesus went out and the disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Whom do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But some say Elias, and others one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answereth and saith unto him, Thou art the Christ. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. So we see that Jesus goes on to ask the same question to his disciples. And Peter, as usual, speaks up and says, thou art the Christ. Finally, that's exactly right. Peter and the rest of the disciples knew exactly who Jesus was, and they were willing to admit it. Praise God. Now, I don't know about you, but it's almost weird to hear the Christ, isn't it? We're so used to hearing Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, almost as if it's his last name. Um, but of course it's not. It's his title, it's his position. Um, it's his prophesied role. The word Christ in the Greek is, is the Greek equivalent word of the Hebrew word Messiah and means anointed or anointed one. So in Luke's version of the same passage, we see more detail about Peter's answer and that he says that Jesus is the Christ of God. So what that literally means is the anointed of God. Jesus is the anointed of God or the anointed one of God. Um, just to make sure we're on the same page about that. So... The disciples knew that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. I'd say even from the moment that they began following him. Take a look at John chapter 1 with me, if you will. In verse 41, it should be on the screen, yes. Uh, in verse 41, Andrew, Peter, Peter's brother, tells Peter to follow him because he's found the Messiah. And he says, He first findeth his own brother Simon, Simon Peter, and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And a few verses later, um, verse 45, Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. However, Nathanael is skeptical at first. 
um, which we see by his response in verse 46. And Nathanael saith unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? But Nathanael follows Philip anyway. And as he's approaching Jesus, we get a glimpse into Nathanael's heart. Jesus says in verse 47, Behold, an Israelite indeed in in whom is no guile, meaning no deception. Which is awesome because we just saw that Nathanael answered Philip honestly one verse ago when he spoke from his heart. And since he's honest, it didn't take him long to figure out that Philip was right and Nathanael again speaks what's in his heart. In verse 49, and he says, Rabbi, thou art the the son of God, thou art the king of Israel. So we see that the disciples were of honest, humble, and believing hearts when they first followed Jesus. So they were easily able to accept that Christ was the Messiah, Jesus was the Messiah, and he he was the Christ. Um, He was he of whom Moses in the law and prophets did write, the son of God, the king of Israel. Their approach was, hey, we found this guy of the scriptures, not we found this guy that does miracles. And we're not going to go there, and there's a bunch of references on your sheet. Um, but because of the disciples' believing heart approach toward Jesus, they were able to see that he was the prophesied Messiah of Daniel 9. Um, he was that prophet that Moses wrote about in Deuteronomy. Emmanuel of Isaiah, the messenger of the covenant, and the son of righteousness of Malachi 3, 1, 4, 2. The son of David of 2 Samuel 7 the king of the Jews, of a bunch of places. <laughs> and the disciples were in on all of that. However, look back at the end of our passage in Mark 8. It seems that Jesus came wearing all the hats that they expected, but he came potentially wearing even more hats than expected, meaning like rolls. Let's pick up in verse 29. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answereth and saith unto him, Thou art the Christ. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. Hold on a minute. That doesn't exactly make sense. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, he was supposed to be the king. He was supposed to set up his kingdom and sit on his throne in Israel. Why aren't they supposed to spread the news? Let's keep reading. And he began, in verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. First of all, bad idea, Pete. That doesn't go well, well for him. But the point is, they didn't really understand anything about the cross at that point. They thought he was going to come and immediately set up his kingdom on earth. That's why Peter had the bright idea to rebuke him. Um, but Jesus knew that they didn't get it, so he started to let them in on the plan a little bit, which is what we just saw. And this is cool, because right after they provide Jesus with the right answer, To his question, due to believing hearts, Jesus fills them in on some more info. And Luke 16.10 says, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much, and he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. Since the disciples were faithful in what they had been given, Jesus was giving them more. And he still operates that way today. Now, remember all the confusion about John the Baptist and Elijah and all of that? um, About the answer of the people? Honestly, I'd you know, I can see how, given the context of the day, there was some confusion about that. Um, I probably would have had some confusion myself. Um, even the disciples who believed and accepted Jesus as the Christ had a little bit of confusion about it, and especially after this hint from Jesus. So, a little later in Mark chapter 9, verses 11 through 13, they ask him about Elijah. Um, however, let's look at Matthew's version of it in Matthew 17 um, for a little more detail. 
And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias must first come? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias has come already, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. Oh, okay, so basically, John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah, and if Israel accepts Jesus as the Christ and the King, then that counts as fulfilling the scriptures, and if they don't, he doesn't. Um, And if you didn't understand all that, that's fine. Here's the point. The disciples knew Jesus to be able to ask him those questions. They had a personal relationship with him to be able to receive instruction from him and be entrusted with information about him. Generally speaking, the the multitudes didn't. And it all started with a humble heart attitude towards him. Now, I know that we've been pretty harsh on the multitudes up to this point. Don't get me wrong. It's not like everyone except the disciples missed or rejected Christ. Actually, a lot of folks did get it right. And as far as I'm aware, except for the leaders, scribes, and Pharisees, every person that had some kind of experience or interaction with Jesus personally saw him for who he really was. Even Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, seemed to figure it out and get it right before it was all said and done. And you can see those references in John there in your sheet. So what's the difference? The difference is your heart attitude and approach to Christ. Those that approached him selfishly, pridefully, sinfully, seemed to miss him or reject him altogether. James 4, 6 says that God resisteth the proud but giveth grace unto the humble. And that's exactly how you see Jesus operate through the scriptures. He rejects those with prideful hearts and lifts up those with humble hearts. And it's no different today. The approach of your heart to Jesus today will determine your relationship with him. Although he may not be with us physically, John chapter 1 lets us know that Jesus was the word made flesh in verse 14. So our approach to scripture, to the Bible, to the word of God, is our approach to Jesus today. Earlier in James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, it says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, He is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass, for he beholdeth himself and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. When you enter into the good book, the perfect law of liberty, you're going to behold yourself, meaning your approach to it is what you're going to get out of it. So now back to our passage. Notice that after Jesus asked the disciples the first question, he doesn't seem to care much about what the answer is. In fact, he doesn't address that that answer at all. He simply goes on to ask the same question, but directed to them this time, and starting it with the contrasting word, but, almost as if to show that this is the important question, the question that he's about to ask. You see, it doesn't really matter whom everyone else says that Jesus is. What really matters is whom you say that he is. Which brings us to our final point. Whom do I say Jesus is? Now, like we've said before, when the disciples answered Jesus' question, they called him the Christ. And here's the key. In doing so, they were acknowledging that he was God. Yes, there's a a lot of past and yet future prophecies and details associated with that title. And he didn't exactly do yet what they were expecting him to do, but he was God. And if nothing else, we need to know that he was God, and we need to know what what he did accomplish while he was here. Let's take another look at Mark 8, 31. 
when Jesus began explaining what he must do when he was rebuked by Peter. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Do you know what he's explaining? He's explaining the gospel. He's explaining that instead of being accepted as the king of Israel and setting up his physical kingdom like they thought was going to happen then, instead he's going to be rejected, killed, and raised again the third day, just like Paul preaches in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. And, and he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. And here we see that Christ accomplished the most loving and most significant act toward, toward us in all of human existence. He died for our sins and was buried and rose again the third day. You see, God knew that we were all sinners, born separated from him and fallen short of his glory, like it says in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And he knew that our sins demanded our death, like Romans 6.23 says. For the wages of sin is death. And God understood that if we died in our sins, that we would be separated from him forever in eternal damnation, damnation like Revelation 20, 11 through 15 talks about. But our God is a loving God. So he did the unspeakable and humbled himself and became a man, a perfect and sinless man, so as without the penalty of death. And he substituted himself on the cross in place of us, in place of you, and paid your death for you, so that you get eternal life. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. All you have to do is believe. Truly, believe in your heart. Do you remember how we started this evening? By looking at the connection between your mouth and your heart? Look with me at Romans 10.9-10. It says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, Thou shalt be, f be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. If you have not done so already, I beg you tonight to confess Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. And don't do so only with your mouth, but let your mouth speak from a humble heart, because that needs to be your answer for whom Jesus is. In our passage in Mark, the disciples confess Jesus to be everything that they could have at that time not yet knowing everything that he would be. And after the cross, you better believe they confessed him as Lord and Savior. Peter said in Acts 5, 30 and 31, talking to the Pharisees, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. John said in 1 John 4, 15, 14 through 15, and we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. And those guys gave their lives for what they said. Let me remind you that 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. I know that most of us in here have already given the right answer for who Jesus is. 
and that we've given that answer with our mouths. But do the lips of your life confess that same thing? Do you know what the Bible word for lifestyle is? It's conversation. That's the word. You know, actions speak louder than words, right? What does the conversation of your life communicate? One final passage, Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. It says, put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Let's live honestly and humbly before God and men, confessing Christ according to the glory due his name. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, man, thank you so much for who you were when you walked on this planet, who you are today. Uh, thank you so much that, uh, man, that you came humbly and that you came, man, willing to give your life for us. And we're so thankful for your word. Um, we're so thankful that, uh, man, that you made a way for us to know you. And Lord, um, I pray that tonight, Lord, that we would be willing to, to look into our own hearts and to see who we truly are, um, Lord, and, and to look at our, our own lives and see how we live and to see if we're hypocrites. Um, God, and I, and I pray that if we find that that's true of ourselves, that we would repent. Um, Lord, I pray that, uh, man, that, that we would just approach you humbly um, and approach your word humbly. And um, God, I pray that, that we would be encouraged to, to do it right um, and to live a holy um, acceptable life before you um, because you're worthy of that. And Lord, thank you so much that, man, that when you came and that you didn't come necessarily in ways that we can understand because you're so much greater than that. Um, thank you that, that you came um, and really showed that you're God. Um, and, and we know that your ways are so much higher than our ways and your thoughts are so much higher than our thoughts, um, Lord. And, and thank you so much that Man, that, that you proved that you were God when you rose again from the, from the grave. Um, we're so thankful for that. And that you made it possible for us to be reconciled to you forever. Um, Lord, we love you. Um, we are indebted to you for what you've done. Um, Lord, I pray that if there's anyone that's here that has not confessed you as their personal Lord and Savior, I pray they would not leave tonight before they would do that. Um, Lord, and, and give them the boldness to, to find somebody and talk to them, to ask, to ask more questions. Lord, thank you for the well and for allowing us to be here and um, for all the blessings you give us. You're so good to us. Um, we love you and we want to lift your name up. It's in your name we pray. Amen.